0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Ali Reza Tahiri, a psychoanalyst working in Toronto, Canada.
1: mentioned this project to me, I was uh, very fascinated by the idea of the uh, free associative process that you want included in it. Um, I have to say, it did make me a little bit nervous because I really didn't have an idea where to start. Um, So I decided to start with that. And in fact, what I'm actually speaking at the moment is not necessarily related to what I intended to speak about. This idea of making it like a session has been very... um, interesting for me because it makes you at once a a psychoanalyst and, uh, well, I guess an interviewer, uh, one could say, um, which are um, uh, two things that I had never uh, brought together in my mind. What I particularly find uh, nice about it is um, the fact that unlike sessions where I'm actually seeing a patient of mine, this gives me a chance to... um, talk about myself, which uh, I do in my own analysis, but it's it's a kind of a different way of talking about myself. It's a, perhaps a little less intimate because it's only for this once. But at the same time, um, it gives me a chance, from what you told me, to talk about projects that I'm involved with rather than more intimate issues. And... Um, That's something that I think psychoanalysts or people working clinically have less of an opportunity to do uh, because uh, in this profession, you're kind of trained from the beginning to find other people more interesting than yourself. At least uh, that's what ethically uh, you should kind of uh, incline yourself towards. so uh, what got me interested in psychoanalysis was initially Freud, uh, but then um my reading of Freud and then uh, subsequent post Freudian literature wasn't enough to make me want to become an analyst um or any kind of clinician psychotherapist I mean, whatever one wants to call it um, What really triggered the, the desire uh was my encounter with Lacan funny enough um, uh, and that's when I sort of decided that i would like to be a clinician and decided to to follow this uh, pursuit. And one of the things that I found that one has to do as a clinician, which is uh, why I appreciate what we're doing here right now very much, is that as a clinician, I feel that my purpose, to put it in a very philosophical kind of language, is to help other people access what is most singular about them and get that singularity to find a place within universality somehow so that it doesn't... Yeah, I think two things can be very tragic for a human being. One is that they completely lose touch with their singularity altogether. I guess that's the uh, uh, the situation in Fight Club of the... I forget the character's name, but, but the kind of the good guy, you know, the... Uh, the one who, uh, you know, wanted all the IKEA furniture, etc. It's like he had completely buried his singularity uh, under these kind of uh, social ideals that were, on top of being just social ideals imposed from from the outside, they were rather meaningless ones, like the type of furniture you should have, etc. That's one thing that can be very tragic, is to completely lose access to one's singularity, and another, on the opposite end, is to be very in touch with one's singularity, but have no access of expressing it uh, in social otherness, so that you're writing a book, let's say, or you're, um, you have great thoughts, uh, but you know your social situation, economically or otherwise, just doesn't allow for you to uh, be able to... Um, to express it. And that kind of magical, miraculous moment when something of yourself can meet uh, the external world is, I think, uh, the type of goal every clinician has in mind as as a kind of very abstract uh, direction of the treatment for every patient. And your project to me seemed like you doing that for uh, clinicians, uh, artists, uh, poets, uh, and other people who uh, are also interested, I think, in this um, um, kind of paradoxical project, you know, to make the singular universal. Now, it sounds a bit more grandiose, but if you actually think about it, I think Derrida made a really interesting point where he uh, thought about this as this paradoxical thing where someone's private self-analysis, Freud, sitting down, analyzing his own dreams in dialogue with uh, with fleas. how the hell did that become a universal discourse all of a sudden that became one of the most important uh, of the last century? People are always saying, oh, psychoanalysis is dying, which is absolutely untrue. There's psychoanalysts everywhere. The interest in it is constantly there. Um, it, you know, a lot of people hate it, a lot of people love it, but it's on everybody's mind, not all the time, but every once in a while it pops up and, uh, just, uh, you know, it pops up as much as the unconscious pops up. And, um, one of the things I've always thought about Freud is Freud wasn't just ahead of his time. He's ahead of any time. There's never going to be a time that's going to be okay with having this unconscious and being distorted internally with respect to who you think you are. And, um, You know, and this is, I think Derrida is very right. There's something that one needs to think about, about the birth of psychoanalysis is how does something as idiosyncratic as a guy, narcissistically, you could say, sitting down and analyzing his own dreams and thinking about his own paternal complex and desire for his mother and all these weird things, how does that become not only received, but received enough to become a universal discourse? that is at once rejected and accepted, or accepted in the mode of being rejected, which is the best we can hope for, for psychoanalysis, for for the unconscious. One knows that in in any interpretation, you know an interpretation was received when it meets a a little bit of a wall from the patient. I mean, any interpretation that is, oh, it's very interesting, you know, it it wasn't really um, taken in. And the controversies around psychoanalysis are, for me, uh, very much a sign of uh, of its success rather than um, than its uh, failure. And probably the most tragic thing that could happen to psychoanalysis is for it to become an orthodoxy in mental health. It's quite nice that it has this marginalized um, a place. Uh, I, th- I think its efficiency uh, depends on that. So, th- I mean, in light of everything I said, I, I think that the ultimate... Um, Uh, theme (laughs) running through, uh, is that of paradox and contradiction, you know? And I think that's the essence of psychoanalysis, Uh, a private, personal enterprise that becomes a universal discourse, Uh, an interpretation that is rejected, but for that very reason, you know it, the subject kind of took it in, is digesting it somehow, maybe in the mode of vomiting it out, (laughs) who knows? But nonetheless, there is something that's happening there. uh, this type of contradiction uh, of the singular meeting, the universal, is is the topic of my own research at the moment. And um, in a uh, wonderful uh, book volume edited by uh, yourself, uh, Vanessa and uh, Mania, um, on psychoanalysis and violence, I, I had the fortune to be able to contribute a chapter, which is now um, something I'm transforming into a book. Um, I've, you know, I've written most of the manuscript. It needs Bit of editing, and hopefully it'll be done by the end of this year. Uh, what I'm looking at is precisely this type of um, issue of the contradictions um, and paradoxes of uh, of psychoanalysis, particularly, and, and and German idealism is another source that is very important to me. In this, I, I owe this to the influence of the Ljubljana school. Prior to that, you know, it's interesting, I, I was never really, prior to my encounter with Lacan, which then led me to the Ljubljana school uh, to some extent, and to, um, you know, Lacanians throughout the world. Otherwise, I the tradition I was most interested in w- was not at all this dialectical uh, tradition. I was more interested in Schopenhauer, or Nietzsche, and... They, they have often been traditionally considered the predecessors of Freud, uh, and there some incredible passages in Schopenhauer, and in Nietzsche even more, where uh, one is just astounded at the way in which he's saying what Freud will say 40 years later. And in Nietzsche's case, obviously, uh, and always, with this um, brilliant style and this incredible insight. Um, And so that was always, for me, what was very interesting. And then, of course, I was um, quite amazed to discover Lacan and find this completely different way of looking at psychoanalysis, more aligned with Hegel, uh, German idealism, where all of a sudden Kant and Saad, I could understand. I mean, that was still part of the... But then uh, Immanuel Kant, you know, very, very different uh, approach and all these references to Hegel. And this just became... uh, you know, uh, fortified uh, a lot, you know, in the writings of uh, of Zizek, the Ljubljana school, Rebecca Comey, um many people today who are interested in precisely in this interstice uh, of German idealism. I personally kind of see a dual ana- um, genealogy to uh, psychoanalysis. I, um, you know, I, I, there's some passage, I think it's in Seminar 11, where Lacan says, concerning um, Nietzsche's statement that God is dead. He says this is a, it shows his denial of castration or something. He has this kind of flippant, kind of dismissive remark. Um, and uh, in my own mind, you know, Nietzsche always held this kind of very idealized place, until that idealization, I wouldn't say ceased, but it was kind of put into question in my encounter with Lacan, where I all of a sudden saw something else Um, and it, and a sort of a, maybe a battle (laughs) was created between, um, the two in, in a certain sense. And I've kind of come to, you know, um, you know, I mean, talking about an interpretation that I, that gets synced in when I read that, it really created a, um, a kind of, I don't know, a conflict. Uh, I've come to the realization that both of those genealogies are so important. And, um, in my own work, I try to do justice both to the uh, Nietzschean, Schopenhauerian um, origins of psychoanalysis and to its Hegelian dialectical. Um, I just can't um, fathom how uh, Freudianism could be thought about, uh, severed from both of those. Um, and that's been the, the, the kind of uh, goal that my project has been looking at. Another aspect of my project, which is maybe less concerned with um, the origin or, or the genealogy of psychoanalysis or German idealism or Nietzsche, is to apply all of this to contem- the contemporary situation, if you want to call it. There's certain impasses that I've, um, you know, that we have all noticed in today's situation. And I'm trying to understand and explain them through this lens of. Uh, which I've tried to develop throughout this book. Some of these impasses are, you know, with respect to the question of religion. On the one side, we have stringent um, atheists of a very... reductive, uh, pseudo-materialist type. Uh, And on the other hand, we have, of course, religious fanaticism. Uh, And neither of these two are, uh, you know, uh, have a path uh, forward that is uh, in any way productive as far as I can see. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that we find a compromise. And that's the beauty of Hegel's notion of the coincidence of opposites. It's not a question of compromise at all, but it's about the shock of the way in which two opposites actually reveal hidden uh, identity. Uh, And that has been a a really uh, important key that has helped me understand some of these impasses. Um, Another one, of course, is the impasse around sexual difference. Uh, This question has become, in a way, the question of our time, the question of sexual identity, of sexual orientation. Uh, Now, uh, transsexualism has come. And these are questions which uh, are imbued with uh, political strife. Uh, they're not looked at at all scientifically only, and, and it's impossible to imagine that they will ever be just purely scientific questions. Uh, what I think the great strength of psychoanalysis is, is that it can provide us with a real tool for understanding. And as far as I know, any kind of discourse that tries to understand sexual difference, sexual orientation, transsexualism, all of those things without recourse to psychoanalysis is really not going to go very far. Uh, and, that, and by psychoanalysis here, I really mean, um, uh, you know, Lacan's return to Freud. Uh, it is very, very crucial. Here, what Lacan's given us is absolutely indispensable. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the, the Lacan's writings and thinking has not acquired as much here in North America, at least in Toronto where I am. I mean, we are a growing group and there's a growing interest and there are a lot of um, interesting uh, clinicians and academics, but it's still, we're very much a minority. Uh, you know, when we meet, it's always, you know, 10, 12 people, five people, you know, it's, we're not talking about large crowds, uh, obviously. Um, and I think that, yeah, when it comes to that, you know, questions that have become extremely um, heated, you know, there's the whole Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, he he, read, he had certain views. And it all came out about around this question of the sexual difference, the transsexualism, the use of pronouns. And uh, no, it, 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 you know, his views, of course, very much opposed to the kind of liberal uh, orthodoxies of today which, um, you know, where political correctness plays a very, very big role in how things should be spoken about, etc. And what is a pity, again, is again, here we have another antagonism between uh, the liberal left and then Jordan Peterson, who might represent, I mean, this is a bit cursory the way I'm putting it, but a more conservative view. And again, what is missing is a properly psychoanalytic Or, you know, I say dialectical, which is synonymous for me. The Hegelian dialectical and the psychoanalytic are, well, they're not exactly the same, but they're very synonymous in my mind. And that's precisely, again, uh, on those questions, uh, what is missing. Um, And, uh, you know, and it's uh, what is missing in the big other, right? Uh, This is, I think, um, the the question that every subject uh, poses him or herself as their growing up, you know, which we're always doing. Uh, I always say uh, an adult is a myth that only a child is naive enough to believe in, right? Uh, So, um, you know, I'm still growing up. Uh, I'm not sure what I want to be when I'm older, but probably um, a psychoanalyst will be something I'd be very happy to be. And one of the things is figuring out what is missing in the other. And And what is missing is precisely a greater prevalence of psychoanalytic discourse and a greater prevalence of um, uh, Hegelian philosophy. I mean, we sadly live in very anti-philosophical times. Um, I'm always for, um, you know, joining more reading groups, uh, you know, getting people more interested in um, reading uh, philosophy. Um, You know, as I've said many times, I'm very interested in Nietzsche and German idealism, French philosophy of the 20th century. Um, Certain other forms of discourses have, I think, given people today a kind of satisfaction uh, by virtue of their simplicity and by virtue of the pretense to answer many questions. New ageism has, uh, unfortunately, uh, played that role and a lot of people feel like they've figured out the answer to all sorts of, you know, the question of religion. Well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And it's kind of become a mantra uh, by which people, you know, throw under the rug very important moral questions, very important questions um, um, that require, I think, a slightly more depth than um, New Ageism or um, any kind of uh, modern, you know versions of uh, you know Western versions of Eastern religiosity etc I've kind of you know filled up this the the you know the space of questioning a little bit i'm'm not saying that I'm no expert in in those fields and you know and, and people should read and experiment whatever they want but it's become a bit of a hegemony and a bit of a kind of uh, uh, a way in which thinking has stopped. And political correctness has contributed to the way in which thinking has stopped. Oh, well, you cannot say that. And that means you cannot think that. And uh, so a lot of times um, people are forced into thinking in very private spaces because the public space is uh, no longer uh, uh, creating the available space for thinking. And I think, again, that's why psychoanalysis is very important. It's uh, kind of a private space for thinking, a place where people can really say whatever bigoted idea they want to say and think it through in strict confidentiality. And these are the kinds of things that mean a lot to me and um, that I'm hoping that my um, contributions as a clinician and hopefully as a... um, you know, as a writer, thinker, um, can help uh, address. Um, but I do very much see um, a difference in the two tasks, uh, whether uh, as, a, um, as a clinician, I'm similar to the role you are presently occupying for me, uh, Vanessa, which is that I'm helping people uh, achieve something for themselves. I'm giving people an opportunity to slowly find access uh, or to slowly find a way to bridge their singularity to the universal, which is what you're doing. You're taking people's uh, uh, random musings uh, and um, letting others hear it uh, and uh, uh, providing the space for that random musing to become, to start becoming something more than just a random uh, musing in the uh, in the privacy of that, I, I think that the one of the, um, you know, I think it was Kleist who, who said that thinking is not to be separated from the act of expressing it, and um, it's as you express it, and and it's true. I mean, I could have prepared for this uh, and had a script, but it, it's precisely not preparing that you really give your thinking the best chance of um, uh, reaching the type of fruition that it does, and and for my patients, I hope that I'm. Kind of doing that, you know. It's a bit like a parental role. I mean, people always ask me, "Oh, you know, should I become a parent or not?" And my my view of parenting is that it's it's really something you do for someone else. Uh, You're not a parent for yourself. And uh, the moment you become a parent, uh, someone else's destiny is what you're working for. You know, Lacan always says we are like the secretaries of the psychotic and for those who want to become parents, you, you should be their secretary. Really, that is, uh, in a sense, you're there to. It's a bit of a sacrifice, of course. Uh, I mean, and if you, they're not there to fulfill the gaps in your destiny, and and likewise, as clinicians, we're not here to fulfill the gaps of our own destiny. And then, being a clinician is a bit of a sacrificial. Let's say it's a bit exaggerated, but I, I think we are the secretaries of all our patients, and not just the psychotics, but. Even of the neurotic, maybe we're different type of secretaries in either case, but really, um, you know secretaries of the alienated is is uh, the way he puts it, and we 're all alienated, and every alienated person needs a little bit of help and um, and what I appreciate about your work is that I think you 're giving all of us alienated uh, clinicians, artists, uh, poets, and all the various uh, thinkers that you 've been uh, speaking to a chance to um, uh, give voice um uh, to to something which may have remained in a quasi uh, dormant state for them um which i which is the experience that i've had so far today at least um yeah
0: i appreciate that and i uh, i do say to my guests that it's going to be sort of like a session and to let you lead the way whatever you want to talk about but specifically in what you mentioned this like non-judgmental way where people can say whatever they think and not worry about somebody else interjecting their own ideas onto it so much but just to show different world views, different thought processes that people have and especially for clinicians because we are always on the other side helping other people to articulate so it's really nice to have clinicians on and let them articulate their thoughts you know.
1: Yeah yeah and I think that um, I I always see uh, the efficiency of psychoanalysis as a kind of Secretive collective um, affair. Uh, it looks like it's just between you and the patient, but secretly, there's always more um, in a sense. Um, not literally, but there's always a supervisor somewhere. Uh, there's the teachers. Um, there's what you are doing right now. And uh, in a sense, you know, uh, inadvertently by uh, giving me this opportunity, it will probably have an effect on the way I am working clinically for the rest of the week. Uh, and this is something that. And my patients will obviously not feel it in a conscious way, but there will be um, uh, something there. And I think that this building of a, of a community for people interested in psychoanalysis, in whatever capacity, I mean, not everybody interested in psychoanalysis is a clinician. Personally, I came from a humanities background, and um, uh, the idea of being a clinician used to scare me very much. Um, it still does. And I think that if it doesn't scare you, uh, that that's uh, worrisome um, because you know you, you, I think you're involved in doing something quite um, quite difficult. This bridging of universality and singularity is a it's an explosive <laughs> region, um, and so um, yeah, I definitely um, uh, um, feel that um, you know people who are working in this field should have some anxiety and I did and I had a bit too much. And then, and so I just kind of chose not to do it. I, I was kind of more inclined to stay within the academe. Um, but now I actually find that you, uh, as a thinker, you have a lot more freedom working outside the academe. Um, you know, obviously you have more freedom because you're not uh, fighting against deadlines and um, you know, you're not publishing because you have to, etc. And, um, the, the clinical work, you realize, as anguishing or as it can be, um, this type of work, I consider uh, what you're doing a kind of a support. Um, uh, supervision is a support. One's own analysis is a support. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, a lot of patients have no idea that you are being so supportive, so supported in the work that you are doing for them. Um, those who know, obviously, are, are people who are obviously more educated about the field, but other a lot of people don't realize. But it's like behind the veil, there is a lot of people coming together with, with a goal in mind, which is that of reducing the weight of alienation to some extent for uh, for people. And I think that that's one of the things we know from Lacan, from Marx, uh, from Hegel, is that alienation uh, is inevitable, of course. Uh, now, alienation could be caused by, for social, political, economic reasons, for Lacan, it's, it's even much more constitutive. It's just simply the fact of speaking, um, you could be blessed and privileged with all the, um, you know, with with wealth and with great family and loving parents and everything. There will always be this burden of alienation. And, um, you know, and, and and everybody will be, and that that burden is called castration, and the word is purposefully very violent. It's not called uh, limitation or something. It's called castration, which uh, implies really a cut of of something very sensitive. Um, So... uh, yeah, and then and, and in that sense, I, I'm, um, I'm obviously both very happy to be able to help, but very happy to have been able to be helped. You know, I've uh, also gone through this uh, arduous process and, uh, and, you know, will continue to do so. Um, you know, the, the psychoanalytic process is... One of the the greatest metaphors of it, uh, brought forward by Serge Leclerc in his uh, wonderful work, uh, a child is being beaten, uh, and, uh, sorry, a child is being killed, <laughs> that's the, the thing, you know, and you know, sometimes uh, some students ask me, uh, is it okay to hit one's children? And I say, no, you should never hit your children, you should kill them. Um, and the the aim really of a parent is to kill the child, Uh and by that, symbolically, of course. And to symbolically kill your child means to, to free them, to free them from being your child and to make them the, the subject they want to be. And you precisely shouldn't hit your children if you want to, uh, because when you hit your children, you precisely don't kill them. Uh, they remain your child uh, instead of dying to that role. And that's the beauty of the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac, is that uh, you know interestingly i mean it obviously it symbolizes the killing of the child but it also symbolizes the moment at which god uh takes the father's hand and stops him from um, doing the act and so the story shows how the the other the, the parent also gets symbolically killed um and uh you know and that's the the difficulty of the psychoanalytic process is you come in uh not to get beaten <laughs> but but to get killed um and, uh, and and to, to slowly kill um, uh, always symbolically always through the medium of the word uh, through the medium of thought um, but to, to kill the big other to kill to kill God maybe he uh, or at least to kill those early gods which are your parents and then kill here is meant uh, in a loving way it means to uh, dethrone them from the idealized place you've put them and and it's And I think that the ambivalence that psychoanalysis has encountered is very largely about that. It's not so much only about, uh, you know, the perversion of the sexual and and so on. It's really people uh, cannot bear the idea of, um, you know, it's Twilight of the Idols is, uh, you know, uh, a a great name for psychoanalysis. It's a slow, um, uh, um, you know, bringing down of old ideals,
0: And that's why I think it's such a great thing to be promoting and talking about now mm-hmm. nowadays, because we seem to be in this moment where things are really shifting, not just for individuals, but on a societal level. And I feel like psychoanalytic thought really has a place in this discourse to help everyone kind of work through this process we're all going through and manage it.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things with psychoanalysis, um, by contrast to the other mental health fields, psychoanalysis is the one that puts forward the idea of transference the most. It's the one that is most aware of transference. And a lot of people find this really, really problematic. I was talking to a family doctor once, a physician, and he didn't know much about psychoanalysis. And I explained to him transference, et cetera, and he said, oh, this sounds like a very dangerous method. It's terrible. I'm like, well, dangerous method is what it is. I mean, there was even a movie called it. And, and, he, and he was really opposed. And I said, well, transference always exists. I could be a CBT practitioner. I could be whatever, doing aromatherapy. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the hell I'm doing. Transference is there. The very symbolic title that I have and the very fact that somebody calls and makes an appointment positions me in a place of transference. The only difference is that as somebody working psychoanalytically, or the psychoanalysis, Tries to uh, keep this into in mind precisely for the reason that in the long run the idea is to eliminate the transference and this is the um, uh, this is part of the killing of the uh, idols. Uh, one idol that gets killed at the end of the analytic work is that of the analysts. Uh, you know, Lacan put forward a very uh, intelligent concept, which is that of the. Supposed subject of knowledge, the sujet supposé savoir, which is that the psychoanalytic encounter creates the supposition that there is knowledge, and that this knowledge is generally housed in the mind of the analyst. um, You know, uh, and you know, the end of the treatment, uh, that knowledge gets reappropriated by the subject as his or her own, uh, and that dethroning, if you will. of the analysts uh, from the position of transference is is extremely uh, important because I think subjects after analysis become immune to the nauseous effects that transference can have. And we know the nauseous effects of transference through many political examples, of course, of charismatic leaders who have, um, you know, won the favors of people simply by the way they speak or the seductive use of language, etc. And one of the, I think, uh, very important things uh, for growing, you know, for becoming an, a quote unquote adult. I mean, one can measure the level of adulthood by how, um, sensitive and susceptible one is to the nauseous effects of, of transference. And you're right that today we live in a time when transference is very, um, much, uh, mobilized for the wrong reasons. Um, too much transference becomes hypnosis eventually, right? Uh, this, this, you know, and that—that's a, a real danger, um, you know. And Freud was very intelligent to realize that hypnosis is not the way to subjective responsibility. Um, you, you have to just, you know, eliminate that. But and then he was even smarter to realize that wait a minute—it's always there in some way. It's called transference. Now it's not quite—you're fully possessed, but. You're somewhat possessed. I mean, you know, transference is a way in which your mind is hijacked, um, and um, you know, many minds are getting hijacked today. Um, and uh, again, the psychoanalysis has this great role. Philosophy has that role as well. I think that of um, of neutralizing transference uh, and giving primacy to to thinking.
0: No, that's a great way of putting it. Um, You mentioned working in Toronto. What's the psychoanalytic scene like in Toronto?
1: Psychoanalytic scene here is, uh, I think, quite, uh, you know, it changes quite a lot. Uh, So I first came here six years ago after graduate school in Europe. Uh, I was in England. Um, And after uh, finishing in Cambridge, I I decided to come here. I did a short postdoc in France. And then I came here and um, so the psychoanalytic scene here, we have a, some Lacanians, uh, we meet and we, uh, discuss things. Uh, we actually meet kind of by week, like every two weeks. So it's not, you know, uh, rare. Uh, I teach uh, Lacanian theory. I'm in fact, teaching a course on the late Lacan right now as part of the, Toronto Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. That is an IPA institute here in Toronto, but they offer extension courses, which are courses that are open to the public. And so, and, you know, they've been very open to teach quite a number of courses on Lacan. So in the fall, we teach a course uh, uh, called Lacan Unpacked, Pact. And in the winter, now we teach one called Reading Lacan. Uh, and we're working on... Uh, questions around topology, the later Lacanian works, Escabeau, la langue, et But other than the Lacanians, the psychoanalytic scene here is probably predominantly, I, I think, like ego psychology has a certain precedence, so, so very much the opposite of Lacan. Uh, although sometimes when you actually get to meet people who work in ego psychology, you realize, okay, there's a bit of a straw man going on in the critique, Um Yeah, not very, very different. Uh, Kleinianism has a certain uh, popularity here. Uh, I think in a nutshell, you could say British and American psychoanalysis uh, tend to uh, prevail, maybe even more the American... I mean, we are in North America. Ultimately, it's not Paris here. And um, so, you know, you're not going to find many Lacanians who practice with the scansion or, you know, that classical Lacanian style here. Not much at all. Uh, I think the psychoanalysis predominantly... Outside of this group of emerging Lacanians, tends to be um, either classically Freudian or the the sort of post-Freudian, uh, you know, uh, um, Melanie Klein and Winnicott and Carl Abraham, and that that sort of literature tends to still be uh, you know what is read and taught. Uh, that's how I, how I would characterize it. I, uh, you know, I don't know the scene extremely well, but but yeah, I, I think that's. A, fair um picture there's you know a little more growing interest in french psychoanalysis and by that i don't just literally mean just lacan that for sure there's growing interest of quite quite a lot but there's um you know interest in uh, andre green and Laplanche, planche the works of these kind of um liminal extimate <laughs> figures who kind of had a foot in, uh, on both sides of the ipa and lacan at the same time um you know, Andre Green he's like is he a Kleinian is he a Lacanian I mean he's he's famous for his uh, famous uh, unification I think beyond Winnicott and Lacan if I'm not mistaken uh, so yeah those those are uh, popular views. But, but Lacanianism is, is is growing here it's uh, by no means uh, the predominant um, style but but it is uh, growing and um, yeah and that's um, something I'm glad to be part of yeah
0: And did you first hear of Lacan in in school in Cambridge?
1: I heard of Lacan as an undergrad here at at U of T. I did my undergrad at U of T, University of Toronto. Um, And I heard about him in uh, literature courses, uh, of all things, and then eventually in a psychoanalytic course. I did a minor in psychoanalytic thought. At the time, you could do a minor in psychoanalytic thought in the University of Toronto that no longer exists. Psychoanalysis and universities don't really mix in, in, in Toronto, at least, and maybe more generally in North America. It's, well, at least in Canada, it's not the most common thing. Psychoanalysis, as you know, you either have to find it elsewhere or you you find it in little bits, and like you go to a cinema, <laughs> lecture, film studies or whatever. So I heard of him then. I read a bit. I was a bit overwhelmed. I sort of thought like, it's a bit hard to understand and there, there was nobody who was really like teaching it to me. And then I, when I did my master's, I got more into it. Uh, I did my master's at Essex and philosophy. Then I did a master's in psychoanalysis at UCL, a little bit more. And at that point I really got passionate. That was, uh, in my 20s. And then, but my, my PhD was, was very much on Lacan, well, Lacan and Nietzsche, but, uh, but yeah, so I won well, Freud, obviously, but, um, yeah you know he's not he's an acquired taste you know like of course once you acquire that taste it's it's wonderful but it's it's a, it's not a text that's easy to um to just pick up and read on a sunday afternoon uh, without some help uh, some kind of teacher is very much uh, needed um I think but but yeah so I've kind of known him for a while but but yeah I would say it's more as a grad student that I really um, became uh, into the work yeah
0: you need to publish your book on Lacan and Nietzsche
1: yeah well (laughs) that would be uh, maybe a project after this one uh, because it would need like some editing, and, you know, as you know, like after a PhD, the last thing you want. I mean, some people go right away and, and start publishing that, but it's the last thing I wanted to look at. Is, is you know that again? So I, I just you know, went off onto some other things, and then. Um, this came out, so it, this project was a bit accidental because I it, it really came from that conference uh, in New York where I met you, and then when you asked for the article and I wrote it, and then I thought, well, this looks like it has the potential for something more, and so in the last couple of years, I've just sort of, you know, in the time we can find as clinicians to do something um, else, I, I spent time, and, and I think that uh, by the end of 2019, it should be done. Um, so, yeah, but Lacan and Nietzsche, is, there is already one book out there by Alenka Zupancic called The Shortest Shadow, uh, you know, and she's one of the few of the Ljubljana school who, yeah, you know, she, she wrote it precisely to say, no, Lacan and Nietzsche, it's not an opposition. There is some hidden links. And uh, so, yeah, she does quite a job. M- my approach is quite different than hers. Uh, but... Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's a good idea. But maybe after this, uh, I'll uh, retackle the PhD, which uh, by now, you know, it's been it's been almost nine years. So I think I'll be able to <laughs> go back to that text.
0: Uh. You can stomach it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but one of the things I really appreciate about your writing is, like you said, getting into Lacan can be difficult for people if they're not in an area where they can find a study group or something like that, because. At least in the beginning of reading him, it really helps to have people that can kind of explain all these concepts to you. I usually tell people that don't have that, just read it and see whatever you get out of it and don't worry so much about the terminology because eventually it'll it'll start making sense to you. Um, but one of the things I really appreciate about your writing is that you explain these really complicated concepts in a way that I think is very clear. And even though you weave the the lingo or the jargon in, you don't rely on people understanding what those words mean. You explain them in a way that I think that people will be able to grasp. And that was one of the goals we had with the psychoanalysis and violence book, is for it not to just be for Lacanian clinicians, but to be for a more general audience where both clinicians and more general public could really understand and get something out of it because all of these topics are so poignant today and really important, I think.
1: Well, that's a very uh, uh, nice compliment. Thank you. Yeah, I think that it is a duty of Lacanians to help. I mean, of course, sometimes you need to be with the jargon and, uh, you know, uh, amongst your peers and colleagues. But um it's very important just to uh, decrease this alienation that people already feel with respect to psychoanalysis. The the obstacles and the resistances to psychoanalysis are already so many that are constitutive that, uh, you know, adding on this layer of uh, uh, difficult prose and all of these, um, yeah, it's the jargon, really. I mean, you know, I don't blame Lacan for this. I, I think uh, he, you know, there's a great richness in, in what he did. And, um, you know, he, he, he may have been obliged to use that type of language um, that was so, uh, it's so idiosyncratic. It's its such a, it's almost like a private language sometimes, you know, but, but I, but, you know, and he, he had a lot of people around him, uh, very bright, who were able to translate it for, for others. And, um, and uh, yeah, but I think that it is it is quite important and, and um you know increasingly uh, lacan is get becoming available to uh, english speakers uh through the translations of, of Bruce fink and, and others and and through the through the efforts of theorists who write in english um and uh, that, that's a you know that that's a very nice thing and then you know I think always the, the combating of um you know, ignorance, you know, Lacan says, love, hate, and ignorance as the fundamental passions. And, um, you know, ignorance is what leads to precisely what we were talking about earlier, the the transference effects, right, of persuasion and, um, you know, hijacking of minds. And so I think, yeah, I think anybody who's working intellectually uh, in the humanities uh, should take into account that Ultimately, that's what we're trying to do at some level: um, battle our own ignorance, and, and you know, uh, and those of whoever will read us. Um, yeah, keeping. No, I I really do believe in in clarity of, of expression. It's it's uh, uh, quite important. In that sense, I'm I'm kind of more um, maybe old fashioned. I don't know. Uh, but but yeah, I'm. No, but that that said, again, I I, I forgive Lacan for it. Uh, it's uh, he's achieved something so uh, amazing. But but you know, if he was clearer, I might have started reading him earlier. It would, you know, in my twenties, I felt, to. This is uh, you know, in the early parts, I um, it did throw me. And one of the great beauties of Freud is how he can. Just say such great things with not only a clear style, but but uh, you know a prose that is uh, bordering on uh, poetic sometimes, and um, and it's always a real pleasure. Uh, really, uh, it's a pleasure uh, reading uh, Freud. It's a jouissance reading Lacan. You know, it's uh, there's pleasure, but there's some pain. In but yeah, with Freud, it's really like he he respects the pleasure principle, uh, Freud, uh, for his readers. Um.
0: I think that's a great way to
1: play. <laughs> Thanks. Uh,
0: yeah. And I love I, mean, I love Lugan as well and I love the language that he's invented and the play on words that he uses and that sort of thing. And of course also when you're with colleagues and everybody understands the concepts you don't need to explain them. You know everybody knows what you're talking about. Um, yeah. So I think for the most part, within within the institutes or within academia, within the Lacanian study groups and conferences, it's totally fine. But I do I do want to get all of these ideas out to more people and make them more accessible. Also, so maybe maybe people could think about writing in both ways. You know,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> maybe writing papers for for colleagues and then expanding them in, in a little more digestible. Units for others.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's. uh, I I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're uh, in dialogue with like-minded initiates, uh, the discourse, then it's perfectly valid. And then sometimes, you know, what we call the jargon, and it does sound a bit pejorative. But but that jargon or that language is uh, is indispensable to the concept. I don't think it was a a superfluous. Like, it's not just a surplus. For no reason, it, you know, uh, how else to call it, you know, a uh, name of the father. I mean, it is a, you know, but it doesn't mean much to somebody on the street. Obviously, it doesn't mean much. It didn't mean much to me at some point either. Uh, and, you know, and uh, so, yeah, but, but there is, um, you know, uh, and sometimes, like, you know, as soon as you know that people are uh, acquainted to the concepts, the dialogue goes a lot faster. But but when one is publishing uh, in some cases uh you know especially a volume like uh, the one you and uh, mania put together um it's very great that it could um tackle a, a topic that is of relevance to everybody as opposed to the transition to the middle lacan which is only going to be interesting to you know some lacanians even i'm not sure if everyone uh but, yeah, there's a psychoanalysis and violence. I mean, violence is very, very uh, important uh, and very important to understand. And, um, and you know, for, for something of that kind of importance and of, of that type of universal uh, appeal, I mean, violence is important not only today, but it's always been important to understand it. And, uh, and yeah, and, and for that, I think that, that yeah, that, that responsibility of, of, you know, um, Of being more accessible and receivable uh, is uh, yeah it's it's a heavier at that point the responsibility is even heavier yeah fully agreed.
0: Is there anything that we didn't touch upon that you want to make sure that we talk about?
1: Um, No, not particularly. No, I um, I think it's uh, great that we went about it. uh, You know. kind of blindly uh, with this free associative uh, process uh, guiding us. Yeah, no, I really appreciated the, the time you put in for this. Thank you very much.
0: Great, and I look forward to reading your book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard an interview with Ali Reza Tahiri, a psychoanalyst in private practice in Toronto. Dr. Tahiri teaches Lacanian theory as part of the Toronto Psychoanalytic Society and Institute's Extension Program and is a permanent faculty member of Hama Ava Psychoanalytic Institute in Tehran. He is also the book review editor of Psychoanalytic Discourse, an independent international journal for the clinical, theoretical, and cultural discussion of psychoanalysis. Dr. Tejere contributed a chapter entitled Breaking the Spell of the Slave Revolt in Morality From the Subruption of Identity and Difference to the Repetition of the Paraconsistent to the Anthology on Psychoanalysis and Violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives, available from Rutledge. For more, please visit our website, renderingunconscious.org, or my website, drvanessasinclair.net.
2: the creator. She is present, she is not in there in the on. She is never enough, she is not, being they what guides him into life and of the singular world. This deity, physical, is solely for procreation and any sexual act, intention, was considered to be, method brings us closer, team, the, the use agreed, with this definition of, if there ever was one, the walk around the block and, take me to the moon, doesn't easily submit, hidden strata of the soul, an electronic screen can never compete, because it's relying on the content, interactions, its, someone else's places. The longer the distance from the moon in both time and, known as for a space, that new generations experience, the less likely it is that human contemplative ability will remain as such. If a capacity isn't used and exercised, it will dwindle and die. First formed during the child, appears sexuality is a force of. I am just one of those, first issue of, hard and fertile. That said, the moon might then actually be quite good, right? yet covertly very active, just inside Manhattan. Counterforce to this contemporary negation of life, women in general, artists, sensitives, and poets, actually, I know you're doing, out history, have been highly aware of the moon and its relevance, and have adapted to it in afternoon and around the clock and inspiration. Again, the licentropic filter needs to be applied. Moon madness, centered in Italy, varying degrees and cultural shapes signify the inability to handle those aspects of the human on contemporary psyche. Sensitivity, inspiration, non-utilitarian creativity, etc. The response becomes compensating wherever and solar phallic, unusually gathered together of rapacious and feral. For the insensitive, tricky as the moon becomes. Something pallid, useless, and terrifying in its mysteriousness. Something you weigh sometimes. There is something about anxiety that protects its subject, which makes everything bright and simple again. So much alike against fright, and so against fright neuroses. We shall return to this point later. Wolf is also soaked in blood. This ferocity and would take too long. Bloodlust, essentially of its functions, the all the on, with a female shedding of blood, guided. See, was the waves sexuality, and is of the earth, by lunar forces, and relating to fertility, would make Sigmund Freud and later psychoanalysts nod for superstitious their heads. Perhaps not in approval of the phenomena itself, but certainly as a validation of the theory, that sex and aggression are two sides of the same coin. Rope as the whips strike her bare shoulders. She cries out, Severine, Pierre, Pierre, I beg of you, don't let the cat's finishes. It constrains the mobility of desire. Have experimented. I want to be a gray rabbit. Where much has been written about human development and dietary habits in times when sigil while in a state of gnosis induced by orgasm, pain, meditation. Vegetarians and carnivores coexisted and somehow applying a simplified I've got my angel, filter, I believe that much, ten of cups, wolf mythology, in relation to the moon, it's like I've been screening early human sexual trauma, of us, at least what peaceful, vegetarian, agrarian tribes could defend. And there was, smell thee, themselves better in thee, psychoanalysis. Ferocious human entities. But at night, with the serene painting A, best you can. Moon acting as an exist was easier to attack, loot, and rape. The survival instinct is steel by a gate and be not a static constant it positions also with and is transmitted onwards partly in dna and stationary enacting through mythology to help future generations survive the strong association between nighttime in the aforesaid manner of thee will retain the eyes of the moon blood and sexual assault is not a consciously formulated fear or pleasure to take lightly gross and unclean earthiness human eye it's ingrained deeply within us ontology founded cleansed from all corrupting darts in its milky to 10th grant. Two of you have ending. Burrows we are. And subtilbating the pure sub. The idea that this is sinful to shed the blood that is life, retained in the course of the transition, a crown of a bright from the vegetarian to the carnivore and the belief that expiatory rites are required to avert the mysterious runic like grounded magnets polarities or a tour through rural look we can see a pattern others in every possible way pan not dead I out the words.